The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Welcome to a special Valentine's Day edition of The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the show. Here we go. We have a wonderful show today. It's a heartbreaking story. It's a love story and a happy ending. Maybe. Maybe. Look, it's it's not always easy to find happy endings among the poets and novelists and authors or even characters. We reject happy endings often. Part of it's our fault. We as audiences... Because we know life is more complicated than that. Literature follows life, so literature is often more complicated too. Happiness is a complicated business. We'll go through all that before we jump into our fascinating story. I think we'll end up talking a little about love today, a little about poetry, a little about art, a little about happiness, and a lot about life. Happy Valentine's Day. I hope you're in a good place this year. Ready? for the day. I'm in a good place right here in the Jack Wilson studio. There's a door here that people sometimes knock on. Sometimes they interrupt people who knock on the door. Ah, there we go. There's a knocking now. What a surprise. Hello? Ah. It's like I'm visited by... I'm Elizabeth Bennett, star of the novel Pride and Prejudice. Ah, Here to deliver a morsel of news. Mr. Darcy and I are expecting. Huzzah to us! However, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a young couple in possession of an infant must be in want of some sleep. Fortunately, our impoverished neighbor, Mr. Jack Wilson, has offered to babysit our beloved little one so Darcy and I can catch some Zeds. Won't you please support the cause of love literature, and new life. We shall be eternally grateful for your good sense and your good sensibility. Ah, huzzah, Elizabeth. Now that is good news. We were just talking about happy endings, and here we are with Lizzie and Darcy, and it turns out that they are expecting. Could anything be more joyous? Huzzah to everyone. Huzzah to us. This week... Huzzahs go out to Anton and Catherine C. for their generous support of the show. And if you'd like to support the cause of literature and podcasts about literature, please visit historyofliterature.com's... No, I have that backwards. Please visit patreon.com slash literature and find out more about how to do it. Okay, let's get to our story. 
We have two individuals today, 20th century greats, a poet and a painter whose lives intersected when they were young and just getting started. They fell in love. They were torn apart. They both ended up becoming famous, and they never forgot one another. And both of them met with tragedy. It's like a combination of Anna Karenina and La Boheme and Romeo and Juliet and Sophie's Choice and 100 Years of Solitude and every other doomed love or life story you've ever heard. And it would take a gloomy person such as myself to think that this is the happiness, that tragedy mixed with comedy and love mixed with death is part of the happiness because it's all part of the depths of life and examining life in all its aspects makes me happy or not happy exactly, fulfilled or stimulated, but I won't impose that view on everyone else. That might just be me glad to hear sad stories because I think they open me up and make me feel things like compassion and understanding. I like the human condition in all conditions. I don't want a dull knife. I want things sharp, as sharp as they can be, even if that means that once in a while I feel a bit of pain. But I get it. That's a minority view. Disney's not hiring me anytime soon, people. But I think even setting that aside, I can tell this story with a happy ending. I just need to shuffle things around a bit. So let's get to the story. Or wait, before we get there, let's talk about what it means to be happy, and in particular, what it means to have lived a happy life. It's a question that fascinated the Greeks. How can you say that one has lived a happy life? We're all striving for that, right? At the end of the day, we all know we're going to die. So while we're here, we want to live a happy life. Set aside heaven and hell for a moment. We can aspire to living a happy life while we're here. At a funeral, we look for signs that the deceased lived a happy life. Clearly, the first thing that we look for is, did they live a long life? Because we equate that with happiness. But the next thing we look for is this. Was this person happy during their life? Were they content? Did they have a pleasant disposition, the kind of attitude you have when you tend to get the things you want, and are satisfied with what you have? Did they smile? Did they laugh? Did they find love? Were they in a meaningful relationship, not full of acrimony and strife? Were they a success in their chosen endeavors, in their profession, in their hobbies? Did they have a lot of friends? Did they have children and grandchildren who made them proud? Let's say the answer to all of these questions is yes. We tend to say that they had a happy life then, right? We're comfortable saying that. Someone has ticked off all those boxes. We say, he, let's, let's call him Bob. We say Bob had a happy life. Now, let me throw something else in there. Let's say Bob made it to the end, died in his sleep, was healthy and smiling all the way. No money problems, a loving wife, proud of his children. Now, let's say a year after the funeral, where we've all stood and, and told one another that Bob has lived a happy life. Let's say a year later, Bob's eldest son goes to a public gathering and for some unknown reason fires into the crowd 
killing several people. A horrible tragedy. Bob's beloved eldest son suddenly is not someone to be proud of. Bob's son is a killer. We know it would have torn Bob apart. Would you still say that Bob lived a happy life? Now, clearly, if that had happened during Bob's life, it would have made him miserable. We know that. If it had happened, say, two weeks before Bob himself died, we would talk about how generally Bob lived a happy life, but he was unsuspecting. We'd talk about how life throws us unpleasant surprises sometimes and how we need to take the bad with the good. We need to do our best, even in the face of unspeakable horrors. We would talk about endurance, about what we do to cope, to get through hard times. But that didn't happen. During Bob's life, Bob lived in blissful unawareness of what his beloved son was about to do. Can we, the judges of a happy life, retroactively apply the unhappy event to Bob's life? This is the question that fascinated the Greeks. Knowing Bob, knowing how much it would have hurt him to see his son do something like this, can we say, well... We thought Bob lived a happy life, but it turns out that Bob's life wasn't so happy after all. Maybe you disagree. Maybe you say, well, this is a clear line. We can draw a line here. What happens after Bob dies has no influence on whether or not Bob's life is happy. Because that life ends when Bob dies. If he was happy up until that point, it's a happy life. End of discussion. What if... Let me ask you this. What if Bob's son had done this during Bob's life and evaded the authorities for a year until after Bob dies and and Bob never knew? So it happened during Bob's life, but Bob never knew. He lived in ignorance, but it was a happy ignorance. Would you still say that Bob lived a happy life? Or was he merely deceived into being happy? And if We're deceived. Can we truly be happy? What if everyone around Bob was terrible and he didn't know? What if they were poisonous people? What if if his wife was cheating on him? What if one of his children, in fact, murdered him? What if his favorite daughter was slipping arsenic into Bob's food? He didn't know. He was happy. And yet his family was full of wretched people. They were killing him. We wouldn't call that a happy life, would we? We'd say he was a victim maybe unaware, but not happy. Let's change our facts a bit. Talk about a different source of happiness for Bob. What if Bob were very proud of his company? Maybe that was his whole life. Let's say it's a nonprofit organization devoted to protecting the river near the town where Bob grew up. And a hundred years after Bob dies, the organization is still there. The river is pristine, beautiful, Exactly as Bob always wished it could be, exactly as he spent his life making sure that it would always remain. Said happy life would seem so. Be one on the happiness side of the ledger. But what if a year after Bob dies, the organization goes out of business thanks to an accounting scandal? And within 10 years, the river is so polluted it catches fire and all the fish in the river die. Finally, it dries up. It's just brown sludge. Is that still a happy life? Does that change how we look at Bob's life? 
Bob's life while he was living hasn't changed at all. Events around it frame the life. Recently, I'm shifting gears a little bit. Recently, a man was telling me about his father, who lived well into his 90s. I'd commit suicide before going through what he went through at the end, said my colleague, and yet, for 80 years or more, his father was happy. If he had died at 80, we'd say he'd lived a happy life. At 95, after years of pain and suffering, it's a little less clear. It's happy at times. So this is what I mean. We say that Bob's happiness depends on that end point. That his death is what marks it. It nails down whether or not he's happy. If only happy things happen to him before he dies, then we say he's happy. But yet, if a 12-year-old dies, maybe a 12-year-old dies, and they're happy their entire life, maybe they've only known joy and happiness, and maybe they die unexpectedly with no pain. And yet we're horrified. We don't call that a happy life. How can we say that it's happy when it's only lasted for 12 years? But then again, how can we say that it isn't? If it's happy every single day, these are all difficult questions. And I suspect everyone has different answers. We all have different values. Maybe it's impossible to say someone led a happy life. Maybe that's too reductive because every life has some happiness and some sadness. Maybe it's a meaningless question. Some will say that a a life without love cannot be happy. Some will say the same about professional success or family or personal growth, or health. We assign different weights to these values depending on who we are. We're trying to live a happy life. We maybe don't always understand exactly what that means. And even if we just talk about one of these values, when we talk about love, for example, here on the eve of Valentine's Day, what do we mean? As we saw in our Romeo and Juliet episode, there are very different kinds of love. Shakespeare shows us several. Young love in Romeo and Juliet. That play can only be understood in that context, in that framework of young love. Shakespeare also shows us elsewhere filial love, jealous love, obsessive love, unrequited love, platonic love, love within friendships, subject ruler love, and so many others. That was just off the top of my head. How about this for a definition of a happy life? There must be some moment during your life when you feel yourself completely in love. Completely, passionately, madly in love. Ideally, here's the model that we all have. You have this passionate love and that smooths and mellows and becomes something sustainable. Passionate love in one's youth a 50-year romance, still in love at the end. Maybe not quite the same as when you're 18, but still in love at the end. Is that the goal? Some might say yes. Is that the goal of life? Some might say that's naive. Some might say it sounds stifling. But does anyone say that passionate love, the weak, The month, 
the year or two of headlong, overwhelming love? Does anyone say that life is worse for having that? My college friend told me he didn't believe in that kind of love. He looked at his own parents, who, as it happened, had never been head over heels in love, and he said, you know, I don't think people fall in love like that. That's just in the movies. It doesn't really happen. People just kind of decide that they'd be good for one another. They decide to have kids. They find someone they're compatible with, and then they they make the best of it. That's what he told me. And a year later, he was chasing a woman around the world because he was madly, truly, deeply, madly in love with her. And I've never seen him more miserable or happier. If he died tomorrow and I was, if I was asked to speak at his funeral and I made it my business to talk about whether this man, my friend, had lived a happy life, if I was trying to soothe the audience by telling them that this person had, yes, indeed, lived a happy life, I would think about that period where he was chasing his true love around the world. He was happy. The rest of his life has carried that glow. So now, let's talk about our poet and our painter. It's an incredible intersection, an astonishing accident of literary and artistic history. We'll see where that takes us. We'll definitely find love there, and certainly we'll find deep sorrow. We'll see if we can also find happiness. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. The Russian poet Anna Akhmatova 
It's also pronounced Akhmatova, but I'll go with the British pronunciation today. Anna Akhmatova was born in 1889 and started writing poetry at the age of 11. She met another poet on Christmas Eve of 1903 when she was 14. He pursued her for three years. His name was Nikolai Gunlyov. In 1907, age 18, Anna wrote to a friend, He has loved me for three years now, and I believe that it is my fate to be his wife. Whether or not I love him, I do not know, but it seems to me that I do. Not exactly a ringing endorsement. Three years later, they were married. No one from her family attended the wedding and went on to a honeymoon in Paris. Within a year, she was telling friends that her husband had lost his passion for her. He left for a six-month trip to Africa, and she returned to Paris. Those are the barest bones of a story. We can fill them in by talking about three different things. First, the poetry of her her own poetry and her husband's poetry. Second, what happened to her in Paris. And third, what happened to her after Paris. I'm going to tell them in, not in chronological order, I'm going to go first, then third, then second. We'll do poetry, then the rest of her life, then back to Paris. We'll save her return trip to Paris for the end. So, the poetry. Seems that Kumilyov and Akhmatova, they had some, some poetic similarities and some poetic differences. Revolves around the movement called Ekmeism, which both Gumilyov and Akhmatova, along with other poets like Asip Mandelstam, were developing. It's probably best viewed as a group of poets reacting against the dominant poetry of the time, Russian symbolism. Russian symbolism began around 1884 or so, rising to prominence in the 1890s and 1900s. It took as its influences irrationalistic and mystical poetry and the philosophy of Russian thinkers, as well as the novels of Dostoevsky, the operas of Richard Wagner, the philosophy of Arthur Schopenhauer and Friedrich Nietzsche, French symbolist and decadent poets, you may know them, Stephen uh, Mallarmé, Paul Verlaine, Charles Baudelaire, and the dramas of Henrik Ibsen. Alexander Bloch was perhaps the most famous Russian symbolist poet. He took up the mantle of all of these European influences and became one of the leading poets of his day, writing according to Russian symbolist principles. It's a little hard to do the poems justice in translation because meter and rhyme and word choice are essential. Russian poetry is notoriously fam- uh, difficult to translate, dating back to Pushkin. But here's a bit to give you a sense of the subject matter. This is by Alexander Bloch. Black night, white snow, the wind, the wind, it will not let you go. The wind, the wind. Through God's whole world it blows. The wind is weaving the white snow. Brother ice peeps from below. Stumbling and tumbling, folk slip and fall. God pity all. Here's another one. Some night and street, some chemist's lantern is bringing senseless, weary light. Well, Nothing changes. That's one pattern. 
live 25 years and find you die to start a life all over. All things repeat as did before. That night, cold waters rippling in the canal. That light, that street, that same chemist's store. Those can be read on their own as poems, but they're also, because this is Russian symbolism, they're also part of a kind of code. There's a coded structure underlying these poems. Here's a description of Russian symbolism in Bloch's poetry that I found online. Quote, Bloch considered his poetical output as composed of three volumes. The first volume is composed of his early poems about the fair lady. The second volume comments upon the impossibility of attaining the ideal for which he craved. The third volume, featuring his poems from pre-revolutionary years, is more lively. For Bloch's poetry, colors are essential. Blue or violet is the color of frustration, when the poet understands that his hope to see the lady is delusive. The yellow color of street lanterns, windows, and sunsets is the color of treason and triviality. Black hints at something terrible, dangerous, but potentially capable of esoteric revelation. Russian words for yellow and black are spelled by the poet with a long O instead of Y-O in order to underline a hole inside the world. Bloch developed a complicated system of poetic symbols. In his early work, for instance, wind represents the fair lady's approach, whereas morning or spring is the time when their meeting is most likely to happen. Winter and night are the evil times when the poet and his lady are far away from each other. Bog and mire represent everyday life with no spiritual light from above. End quote. You can see a kind of attraction, why we might be attracted, why some readers might be attracted to this kind of symbolism. Poems are full of hidden meanings, and it's fun to figure out the meanings. It's fun to unlock secrets, to know the key to everything. On the other hand, you can almost hear the rejection of this kind of writing, too. Why not say what's on your mind? Why not deal with the thing itself rather than make everything into a kind of puzzle? Why do we need a code and a code book? Why can't the chemist's lantern, chemist here being a pharmacy, pharmacist, drugstore, why not deal with that lantern for what it is? The yellow light not meaning something because yellow is equivalent to some theme, but because yellow gives us this kind of feeling, which may or may not be associated with that theme. We know what a, a lantern at night does to us. We know how it makes us feel. What Gumilyov did, I'll, I'll summarize it very briefly and say that the Acmeist poets viewed symbolism as too abstract and vague. Instead, they favored a poetry that was compact and direct, clear imagery. They also looked to Europe and the world, culture, history, and sought to express high culture in their poetry as well. There were a lot of similarities between Acmeism and the imagism of Ezra Pound, and his followers, his fellow poets, in Anglo-American literature at almost the exact same time. So, our Acmeus here that we're concerned with, Gumilyov and his spouse, Akhmadova, husband and wife, were together in this rejection of symbolism, but they themselves wrote very different poetry from one another. 
One difference between Gumilyov and Akhmatova was the subject matter of their poetry. Gumilyov wrote narrative verse. Here's an example. This poem is called Reader of Books. My dear friend, and I have tried to find my paradise in serfdom of a soul, I liked them all, the odd ways of a mind without hopes or memories or goals, promptly to glide along the brooks of lines, to enter into straits of chapters, slow, to watch a foam on the flow's spines, and listen to a tide's increasing roar. But at the night, oh, how fast they gloom, the shades behind the images and drawers, the pendulum immobile like the moon that o'er the glimmering quagmire hovers. Here's another poem by Gumilyov, Akhmatova's husband. It's called To the People of the Future. Listen to how there is no symbolism here. It's very different from the Alexander Block poems we heard. At the same time, think about where the poet is in all this. Might be a question you might ask. Where is the poet? To the people of the future. This single link was else respected by people of the days that gone. There's written on its tablet, tablet sacred that love and life is one. But you're not they. You live like arrows of dreams that fly through skies and earth. And in your flight, unite, my fellows, the love and death. They said in their pledge eternal that they are slaves of the bad past, that they were born in dust infernal and will return again to dust. Your heedless brightness was aroused by songs of lyre, mad and fine. Eternity will be your spouse, the world, a shrine. All folk were utterly believing that they must live and love with smiles. That woman is a child of sinning, who's marked by sins a hundred times, but different Unearthly sounds were brought to you by running years, and you will take to snow crowns your gentle friends. Where is the poet? It's almost a, an omniscient narrator, right? It's told in the second person, but we see almost nothing of the poet's personality. What's happening to the poet? What emotions? What's the poet's position among all this? What is the poet feeling? The effect is somewhat cerebral, and although there's a slight point of view, it feels a little wooden to me. Akhmatova, our poet that we're studying today, is different. Akhmatova wrote about other subjects like love and relationships. Akhmatova used what's been called an elegant colloquialism in her poems, talking about love and intimacy in a psychologically sophisticated way, she was recognized almost immediately for the integrity of her poetic voice. As the years went on, she specialized in tragic love, doomed love, delivered from a female point of view. Her poetry developed over the years. It took on politics, one suspects to the extent that she was able to take it on, given the regime, the Stalinist regime that she was living under. She also translated other poets, wrote essays on authors. By the time of her death in 1966, she was recognized as the greatest Russian woman poet, certainly of the 20th century, probably ever, one of the greatest Russian poets who ever lived. Here's an example of her poems, her poetry. I taught myself to live simply. 
I taught myself to live simply and wisely, to look at the sky and pray to God, and to wander long before evening, to tire my superfluous worries. When the burdocks rustle in the ravine and the yellow-red rowanberry cluster droops, I compose happy verses about life's decay, decay and beauty. I come back. The fluffy cat licks my palm, purrs so sweetly, and the fire flares bright on the sawmill turret by the lake. Only the cry of a stork landing on the roof occasionally breaks the silence. If you knock on my door, I may not even hear. We know where the poet is there, right? The poet's there with the fluffy cat licking her palm, purring so sweetly. It's such a serene moment, the way the fire flares bright on the sawmill by the lake. We can see it all. We can see where the poet is. We can see what the poet is feeling. And if if we're wondering if the poet is in a kind of reverie, well, she tells us, if you knock on my door, I may not even hear. That is a feeling we've all had, right? Of being absorbed by nature, our surroundings, the beauty of it, the clean living, the simple living. Hmm. Here's another one called Four Osip Mandelstam, her fellow poet, someone she had an affair with. Listen to the images as they interact with the poet's perceiving consciousness and shifting moods. And the town is frozen solid in a vice, trees, walls, snow beneath a glass, over crystal, on slippery tracks of ice, the painted sleighs and I together pass. And over St. Peter's there are poplars, crows, there's a pale green dome there that glows, dim in the sun-shrouded dust, the field of heroes lingers in my thought. Kulikovo's barbarian battleground. The frozen poplars, like glasses for a toast, clash now, more noisily overhead, as though it was our wedding, and the crowd were drinking to our health and happiness. But fear and the muse take turns to guard the room where the exiled poet is banished, and the night, marching at full pace, of the coming dawn, has no knowledge. Akhmatova started writing poetry when she was 11. She was descended from aristocrats, and she took the name Akhmatova because of its relationship to the family legend, a chieftain named Akhmat, who himself traced his lineage to Genghis Khan. Joseph Brodsky called her pseudonym her first successful line of poetry. She was striking in appearance, six feet tall, raven-haired, often compared to Cleopatra, with striking eyes and the profile of an Egyptian queen. By 18, she was starting to publish her poems as she was finding her voice. Here's an early poem. When you're drunk, it's so much fun, your stories don't make sense. An early fall has strung the elms with yellow flags. Hear how easy that is. The images are almost like haiku in their subtlety. They create a mood quickly, without fuss, focusing the listener's attention on the image and the direct sensation that it evokes, while still managing to convey a suggestion of autobiographical narrative. 
we see the poet with her lover or with her friend saying, when you're drunk, it's so much fun. Your stories don't make sense. (laughs) That can be fun when you're young, (laughs) at least. Here's another. Then helplessly, my breast grew cold, but my steps were light. I pulled the glove for my left hand onto my right. Very simple, deceptively so. I pulled the glove for my left hand onto my right. That's what love is, right? Your breast grows cold, but your steps are light. And then you pull the... You're so distracted. You pull the glove for your left hand onto your right. That detail could come out of Flaubert... It's a development we've seen in novels of the 19th century and stories as the 19th century turns to the 20th. Authors like Flaubert and Maupassant and Chekhov, the telling detail that invites the reader in. What kind of breathlessness, what kind of inner state are you in? What kind of fog of love are you in when you pull the glove for your left hand onto your right Think back to Bloch with his symbolic crossword puzzles and Gumliev with his marching cadences and his elevated phraseology, the elaborate metaphors in both. Gumliev had your heedless brightness was aroused by songs of lyre, mad and fine. Eternity will be your spouse, the world a shrine. That's Poetry being handed down from on high. The guru sitting on top of the mountain, telling us, telling the rest of the world what's going on. Now compare that with Anna Akhmadova. I pulled the glove from my left hand onto my right. A detail from the everyday world. Something we've all done, maybe, but placed in the context of love and distraction. Very personal. Invites us right in, doesn't it? Can't we share that moment? Can't share the moment with the guru who's giving us the news, telling us how the world is. We can share the moment with the poet that's telling us she pulled the glove for her left hand onto the right. In this poem, called Love, Akhmadova compares love to a snake and a dove. Now, Like a little snake, it curls into a ball, bewitching your heart. Then for days it will coo like a dove on the little white windowsill. She could also be sexually frank, writing poems with titles like We Are All Carousers and Loose Women Here. (laughs) That's a great title. (laughs) We Are All Carousers and Loose Women Here. Here's how that one goes. Here's part of it. You are smoking a black pipe. The puff of smoke has a funny shape. I've put on my tight skirt to make myself look still more svelte. Not bad for early 20th century. You can see the appeal. It feels real and fresh. It's not dressed up or disguised. It's not putting on airs. It's direct. This was the voice she used to take on themes like God and sin and seduction. And the she was very successful with this voice. The writer, Corne Chukovsky, 
said that her first book, titled Evening, quote, accompanied the next two or three generations of Russians whenever they fell in love, end quote. Reminds me of Neruda being the poet of love for whole generations. And yet, here's one in the voice of a housewife talking about her husband. He loved three things in life, evensong, white peacocks, and old maps of America. He hated it when children cried, and I was his wife. <laughs> Love might not be there, but we're there with the poet, trying to find love. As the husband loves evensong, white peacocks, and old maps of America. <laughs> but not the children when they're crying, and I was his wife. I'm not one of the three things either. But we see the difference. There's a complete difference in sensibility between Akhmatova and the Russian symbolists, as well as her husband, Gumilyev, and his poetry. Akhmatova is opening herself to us in a way that Gumilyev wasn't, and the Russian symbolists, because of their principles of poetry, perhaps couldn't. But let's get back to the young married couple. We're talking about the life as well as the poetry here. Gumilyev and Akhmatova, on the verge of their poetic careers, married in 1910, their honeymoon in Paris, then dissonance in their relationship, a chilling from Gumilyev, and maybe a, a never warming from Akhmatova. And Nikolai heads off to Africa, a place that inspired him in his poetry throughout his life, Anna returns to Paris. And then, historical events overtook them in 1917. The Russian Revolution transformed their society. In 1921, she and Gumilyev had been separated for a few years when he was arrested by the Soviet secret police and executed, along with 60 other individuals. Shot in the forest. The writer, Maxim Gorky, had heard of the charges and raced to Moscow to try to help him to try to help Gumilyev, and in fact, he received a pardon from Lenin himself, only to learn that Gumilyev had already been shot. In 1992, the Russian government acknowledged that the allegations, which was a monarchist conspiracy against the government, had been completely fabricated, which was tragically late for Gumilyev. It was also late for Anna and her son, who lived under the shadow of this arrest for the rest of their lives. In fact, their son, Lev Gumilyev, ended up spending 15 years in work camps under Stalin. Some say it was because his father had been executed as a, a monarchist conspirator, and some say it was a message sent to Anna Akhmatova, a way to keep her in line, a way to repress her in her poetry. Anna Akhmatova had chances to leave Russia after the revolution, but she didn't leave. She didn't try to become one of the many Russian exiles, like Nabokov, living in Germany or America or London or Paris. She couldn't give up her homeland, even though the 1930s were incredibly difficult for her. For a 10-year stretch, she was nearly silent no poetry was published, though we know what she was writing, thinking about. She was writing a beautiful and painful lyrical cycle called Requiem, which was about her son's arrest and imprisonment 
Today it's viewed as one of the best works on the horrors of life under Stalin, but it wasn't published then. It wasn't published until the 1980s, years after her death. Instead, during the 30s, she was denounced by cultural ministers and the Politburo. She was called a harlot nun. She was threatened, living a life of unease and danger and knowing that those around her were arrested at a moment's notice in darkness during the night. She lived in fear and heartbreak, seeing what was happening to her friends and her family. Her loved ones, Isaiah Berlin, visited her in Stalingrad in 1945 and called her a tragic queen. Osip Mandelstam, the poet from her early literary movement days and with whom she had had an affair, was arrested and sent to Siberia, where he died within a year. In 1950, she published some poetry in praise of Stalin, it's awful stuff, really, especially knowing how excellent the rest of her poetry is and how fresh and honest it is, the integrity she was known for. And in these poems, she's clearly writing at the behest of a tyrant, a dictator trying to appease him. And that's exactly what she was trying to do, trying to save her son, who was in a labor camp. The two of them had a strained relationship, even after he was released from his imprisonment, he blamed his mother for not doing enough to help him. That may be, but we also know she spent every day at the gates of the prison for months waiting for news about him. Every day she stood in line hoping for news. She wrote her poem, Requiem, she whispered the lines to her friends. It was dangerous to write a poem like that. Brave, courageous, very dangerous. So she whispered the lines to her friends who committed the lines to memory. And she then burned the notes she had taken in an ashtray to make sure that she was not discovered by the secret police. Imagine that even being afraid to write the lines down, but whispering them to friends, devoted friends, who memorized them and whispered them to others to make sure that the poem survived. It's amazing we have this poem. And it's an astonishing poem. It blends genres, it breaks formal rules, it aches with the heartbreak of someone living through extremely tragic events and trying to come to terms with it all. She rejects exile but she's not blind to the horrors of her society and its government. She describes the era of purges as a time when, quote, like a useless appendage, Leningrad swung from its prisons, end quote. She felt a sympathy with not just the sufferers, but those who saw their loved ones dragged away in the middle of the night, even those who weren't imprisoned were forced to wait outside while knowing their loved ones were inside facing torture and death. There's a tragedy in that, too. She wrote, They led you away at dawn. I followed you like a mourner. In the end, she waits, in the poem, she awaits a blissful death. 
She says to death, You will come in any case, so why not now? I am waiting for you. I can't stand much more. I've put out the light and opened the door for you. So simple and miraculous. It's devastating to think of a mother going through what she was going through, appealing to death in that way. I've put out the light and opened the door for you. And then, in an epilogue to the poem, she condemns her country for what it's done. She seems to anticipate that she will one day be recognized for her poetry, for her achievement, but she doesn't want it to be forgotten that she and her fellow countrymen had to live through this brutal, nightmarish regime. She writes, And if ever in this country they decide to erect a monument to me, I consent to that honor under these conditions, that it stand neither by the sea where I was born, my last tie with the sea is broken, nor in the czar's garden near the cherished pine stump where an inconsolable shade looks for me, but here, where I stood for three hundred hours, and where they never unbolted the doors for me. Hmm. Imagine that. Imagine thinking that for all your success, for all the love that you have for your native soil, that you want your monument, the commemoration of your achievement, you want it to be at the prison gates where you waited for your son, waited for news that he was alive. And the doors were never unbolted. We haven't even talked about the First World War or the Second World War. The other heartbreaks she knew, she was married again. Her husband was sent to the gulag. One might ask, why didn't they just kill her? She seemed to be so, such an irritant to a regime, a poet, a famous poet. They were killing other poets. There seems to be some evidence that Stalin found her useful. She was more useful alive, living in Russia, representing cultural achievement. And she did write those poems in his honor at one point under pressure. Maybe that's what he had had in mind all along. I'm not sure we have a definitive answer for why she was allowed to survive and not other poets. Just speculation. Let's summarize briefly and say that her poetry and her life stand as a testament to perseverance in the face of oppression and unspeakable atrocity. We do not have everything she wrote, but we have enough to inspire us and to know that she indeed is one of the great Russian poets, or the great poets of all time. But I promised you a happy ending. So let's look for one. Let's return to those early years in Paris when she was there at the age of about 20, a beautiful, striking woman on her honeymoon, having just married a fellow aspiring poet who pursued her for years and then almost immediately lost interest. While she was in Paris, she met a man, a struggling young painter. His name was Amedio Modigliani, or as some say, Modigliani, and he would become famous world famous. His work in the most famous museums and collections. In 2015, one of his paintings sold for 170 
million dollars. He's one of my favorite painters and sculptors. I find something incredibly compelling about his vision. You may know him best for his elongated portraits, women with long necks. She apparently always drew and painted from memory. That was what he did. He would stare at a subject, commit everything to memory. His companions, even his fellow painters, were astounded by his visual memory. Then he would return to his studio and draw and paint and sculpt from memory so that his art became charged with the electricity of his own internal vision. He did not see things as others did. That comes through in his paintings, which are not realistic in a photographic sense, but they're realistic nevertheless in an emotional, personal sense. I cannot look at his portraits without feeling an almost crushing sense of emotion. Sometimes joy, sometimes pleasure, often a mix. There's nostalgia or loss or compassion coming through. There are inadequacies represented. There are affectionate inadequacies. That's how I view the world, too. People are not at their best when they're muscular and gorgeous and idealized. They're at their best for me. When they look a little hopeless, a little lost, a little flawed, a little strange, but powerfully so, triumphantly so, Modigliani gets me. They first met, Anna and Amadio, on her honeymoon. They kept in touch, and when her husband took off for Africa, she returned to Paris. After... A year of receiving letters from Modigliani. She returned to Paris, and she and Modigliani soon engaged upon a great love affair. They loved spending time in each other's company. They laughed together and loved together. And she served as a kind of muse for his paintings. He took her to the Louvre. Now, interestingly, his favorite painting at the Louvre, the Mona Lisa, she confided to an acquaintance, was his favorite painting, which is very interesting considering the many portraits that he's famous for, the portraits of women looking straight on, much as the Mona Lisa is. The Mona Lisa was stolen during this period. It was gone from the Louvre in 1911, as of August 1911. Maybe that's why he didn't take her to see the Mona Lisa. He took her to look at the Egyptian paintings. And he compared her... Anna Akhmatova with the ancient queens. He drew and painted her frequently, often in the nude. She inspired him. He didn't understand her poetry. Of course, part of this is because he was Italian, she was Russian. I assume they spoke French with one another. He, Anna Akhmatova later said she spoke no Italian at the time. He didn't understand her poetry, but he said he sensed it had greatness to it. He sensed it had miracles in it. She herself didn't understand his paintings exactly, at least at first. But she sensed that he was a great person, a singular person, a genius like no one she had ever met. And that his greatness would enter his painting, she was sure, and later she recognized how it had, the effect that he had had, the effect that he had had on her, and that his art had had on her and the world. Then 
1912, a little less than a year after this time in Paris, she was whisked back to Russia because of her husband. This ended her affair with Modigliani, who was 26 when the affair began and 27 when it ended. By 35, he was dead after painful years of decline, of suffering from alcohol-induced blackouts, hashish breakdowns, and tubercular meningitis. He worked at a furious pace, lived like a comet, 35 short but amazing years with a prodigious output. Was his a happy life? If you told the biographical details of either of these two, Akhmanova or Modigliani, you would be hard-pressed to call them happy lives. They were undeniably full of pain and suffering. But I, his was short, hers was longer, still full of pain and suffering. As I suggested at the beginning, we can find happiness somewhere in here. One happy ending, of course, would be to focus on the art, to say that these were two titans of the 20th century, one of the world's great poets, one of the world's great painters. They inspired one another. They lived for their art, their success. We might look at their artistic success and say that, that that's a happiness, even if they themselves were miserable. Their real goal, their real function, their real purpose, what they wanted was to produce these sensational artworks the pinnacles of their field, and they did. I consist of literature, Kafka once said. I consist of literature. And all the failed romances and engagements, all the struggles can be measured by literature when it comes to Kafka. It's one way to measure him. In that sense, he was happy, even if he maybe didn't know it. <laughs> That's one way to look at Akhmatova and Modigliani, too. They certainly achieved greatness. To the extent happiness is to be recognized by posterity, they could be said to have lived successfully. Do we think Melville had a happy life? Moby Dick sold 35 copies during his lifetime, but has since become, has placed Herman Melville in the pantheon of authors. Do we retroactively give him some happiness for that? Say his life was worth living Seems like kind of a stretch, frankly. I like to think of a different kind of happiness. The kind of success you have being in love, the pure love, the young love, the deepest passion, the deepest despair, the longing and the fulfillment. We know we're not going to live in that state for 80 years. We might get it for one or two, but maybe that's enough. I'd like to think of their time in Paris. Years later, Anna Akhmatova wrote an essay about Modigliani. She wrote, quote, I believe those who describe him didn't know him as I did, and here's why. First, I could know only one side of his being, the radiant side. After all, I was just a stranger, probably a not easily understood 20-year-old woman, a foreigner. Secondly, I myself noticed a big change in him when we met in 1911. Somehow, he had grown dark and haggard. In 1910, I saw him extremely seldom, only a few times. Nevertheless, he wrote to me all winter long. He wrote lines like, quote, You are obsessively a part of me. 
End quote. Akhmadova continues, As I understand it now, what he must have found astonishing in me was my ability to guess rightly his thoughts, to know his dreams and other small things. Probably we both did not understand one important thing. Everything that happened was for both of us a prehistory of our future lives, his very short one, my very long one. The breathing of art still had not charred or transformed the two existences. This must have been the light, radiant hour before dawn. But the future, which as we know throws its shadow long before it enters, knocked at the window, hid itself behind lanterns, crossed dreams, and frightened us with horrible Baudelarian Paris, which concealed itself someplace nearby. And everything divine in Modigliani only sparkled through a kind of darkness. He was different from any other person in the world. His voice somehow always remained in my memory. I knew him as a beggar, and it was impossible to understand how he existed. As an artist, he didn't have a shadow of recognition. End quote. Listen to that passage. Everything divine in Modigliani only sparkled through a kind of darkness. His voice somehow always remained in my memory. She knew him as a beggar, she says, but she saw the divinity in him, the divinity that sparkled through darkness. And this was the light, radiant hour before dawn. Can we be sure that the happiest people have ever been this fortunate, this happy even, as these two were when they met with one another, when they had these months together? There's a great debate in the United States among baseball fans about what a Hall of Fame career should be. Who gets into the Hall of Fame? The Baseball Hall of Fame is a celebrated place, and baseball is a statistics-oriented sport. The decision of whether or not a player was a Hall of Famer is often debated. There are social questions like, what if a player was a cheater? What if they threw spitballs? What if they were a racist? What if they were a steroid user? Who should be in? And what kind of character flaw or performance-enhancing flaw should be disqualifying? But setting those questions aside, there's also a question, do we value long careers, a 20-year above-average career where a player has piled up statistics cumulative statistics, a lot of home runs, a lot of RBIs, a lot of hits? Or should we look at peak years? Should we look at a player's five best years? Maybe that guy was the best player in the game for five years and no more. Maybe they were injured after that. It's an easy question for the greatest of all time who are at the top of their game for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. But what if a player is transcendently great for five years and then was injured and didn't do much else? What is that compared with a player who was maybe never transcendently great, maybe never the best player in the league, but who played for 20 years at a pretty high level? I wonder sometimes if life is like this. What if you're in love for three years and it's overwhelming, head over heels, lose yourself, love, but then you never again return to that? 
and in fact, circumstances drive you apart, you and your lover, and you never experience that kind of love again with anyone else either. What if your next lover is just pretty good? What if the next love lasts a long time, but it never reaches that peak? Or what if you only have a long, moderately happy love, but you never experience the deepest, most powerful form of passion? And then again, maybe you never experience heartbreak and the pain of a love like that ending. Who has lived a happier life? Akhmanova, in her essay, talked about their trips to the Louvre. She says, quote, At this time, Modigliani was crazy about Egypt. He took me to the Louvre to look at the Egyptian section. He assured me that everything else didn't deserve any attention. He drew my head in the attire of Egyptian queens and dancers, and he seemed completely carried away by the great Egyptian art. Obviously, Egypt was his last passion. Very soon after that, he became so original that looking at his canvases, you didn't care to remember anything. End quote. She must have enjoyed seeing his success, knowing the part she played in it. We're loyal to those whom we know. When we think we recognize genius, it's exciting to see the world recognize it too, and to see that we had a particular insight into someone special, to think that we knew we were close to greatness. We knew the person when no one else did. I don't think Modigliani ever got over the Russian poet. Art critics say that once you learn to recognize Anna Akhmatova in his work, you can see her everywhere in his paintings. His biographer said, quote, All his dreams came together in this woman. She had an otherworldliness and such sheer physical beauty and grace. End quote. But were they happy? Listen to this story and decide for yourself. This is from Akmarava. Quote, One day there was a misunderstanding about our appointment, and when I called for Modigliani, I found him not in, but I decided to wait for him for a few minutes. I held an armful of red roses. The window, which was above the locked gates of the studio, was open. To while away the time, I started to throw the flowers into the studio. Modigliani didn't come, and I left. When I met him, he expressed his surprise about my getting into the locked room while he had the key. I explained how it happened. It's impossible, he said. They lay so beautifully. End quote. There's something magic in that. The way that she showed up with an armful of red roses, such a romantic gesture for a woman to have those for her man, the six-foot-tall, raven-haired Russian queen showing up for the much shorter Italian man, the man she was in love with, show up with an armful of red roses, and then she tossed them in the window one by one, to while away the time. Such a young, impulsive move. She could have written him a poem. She could have written him a letter. But there she is with her armful of roses, and she tosses them up into the open window. And he, the painter, the artist, 
the visual artist, the sculptor, he sees the roses and thinks she must have been there. She must have been there. That must have been exciting that the two discover together that the roses have formed such a neat pile that her casual, carefree, love-soaked gesture of tossing the roses up through the window has led to something so beautiful for him to discover and that they then share with one another and have that memory forever. Is that love? Absolutely, I think it is. Is it happiness? Absolutely. But there's something else here, too. Her next paragraph is this. Quote, Modigliani liked to wander about Paris at night, and often, when I heard his steps in the sleepy silence of the streets, I came to the window, and through the blinds watched his shadow, which lingered under my windows. End quote. His shadow. She hears his steps and sees his shadow lingering under her windows. This might be the most romantic relationship ever. <laughs> I'm thinking now of the classic film Casablanca. Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman, you know this movie, right? Rick and Ilsa. There are some parallels here. You haven't seen it in a while, or if you've never seen it, make it your project this week to watch this movie for Valentine's Day. There are some parallels with our story. Humphrey and Ingrid had that youthful connection until history tore them apart. Until, unlike... Akhmadova and Modigliani, they reunited years later. They, this is in Rick's Cafe in Casablanca. They make promises to one another. The true love, their true love, is going to conquer. You know the scene, right, that I'm headed for, where they head to the airport about to escape together, and Rick says to well, let's listen. Will you have your man go with Mr. Laszlo and take care of his luggage? Certainly, Rick. Anything you say. Find Mr. Laszlo's luggage and put it on the plane. Yes, sir. This way, please. If you don't mind, you fill in the names. That'll make it even more official. You think of everything, don't you? And the names are Mr. and Mrs. Victor Laszlo. But why my name, Richard? Because you're getting on that plane. I don't understand. What about you? I'm staying here with him till the plane gets safely away. No, Richard, no. What has happened to you? Last night last we said... Last night a... we said a great many things. You said I was to do the thinking for both of us. Well, I've done a lot of it since then. It all adds up to one thing. You're getting on that plane with Victor where you belong. But, Richard, no, I'm... Now, but... you've got to listen to me. Do you have any idea what you'd have to look forward to if you stayed here? Nine chances out of ten, we'd both wind up at a concentration camp. Isn't that true, Louis? I'm afraid, Major Strauss, I would insist. You're saying this only to make me go. I'm saying it because it's true. Inside of us, we both know you belong with Victor. You're part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. But what about us? We'll always have Paris. We didn't have, we, we lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. When I said I would never leave you. And you never will. 
But I've got a job to do, too. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. Hilda, I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. Now, now. Here's looking at you, kid. So good. Would Rick and Elsa have been happier if they'd never met? Their meeting is what caused all the pain. Not being together made them each miserable. But that's not how life works, or love, or happiness. We have moments. Moments of happiness. Maybe it's the time you went out fishing with your grandfather when you're young, or the time your parents surprise you on your birthday and take you to the zoo for the first time. Maybe it's your first paycheck, or the day you move into your first house. Maybe it's the time you see your child turn into a parent, and you feel the pride and joy of knowing that the person that you raised can now know and experience the joys of parenthood. Or maybe it's the stretch of time, the weeks, the months, the year or two when you are in a love affair that shows you what love truly is, what it's like to love and be loved, to forget yourself, to lose yourself in love. Maybe it's the long years after that, as one thing after another blocks you from ever feeling that way again. Maybe you're not even able to be with that person ever again. Maybe your life is full of sadness and tragedy, filled with sorrow, but there's always that stretch of time, that period that you can look back on. The time when you were young and in love and nothing else mattered. Maybe it's the time when you went to visit your lover with an armful of red roses and you threw them in his window one by one with nothing better to do. And maybe it's the time when he, an artist, comes to tell you that he cannot believe how perfectly they landed, one by one in a beautiful composition. Maybe it's knowing that even though the two of you are famous, your work shared by the world, that at one time you had something that no one else was part of. Anna and Amadio led lives full of suffering. Were they happy? I'd like to think so. As happy as any of us are lucky enough ever to be. They might not have had sustaining happiness. The 20th century had other plans for them. But they had peak happiness. Whatever else happened, they always had Paris. Ah, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you are enjoying your own Paris, whether that's a memory, a current state of mind, or merely something you are eagerly awaiting. Speaking of eagerly awaiting, we have a Kafka show in the works and another one on Dante and top 10 literary villains. Oh boy. So sign up soon if you haven't already. Visit us on 
at facebook.com slash historyofliterature or historyofliterature.com or head on over to patreon.com slash literature to throw a few coins at our head or in our fountain or maybe just our online PayPal account. Throw a few roses in our window. How about that? Oh, I love that. Head on over to patreon.com slash literature where you can throw a dozen roses in our window in honor of Valentine's Day and the wonderful Anna Akhmadova and Amadia, Amadio Modigliani. How excellent is that? I'm really excited. I feel young and in love with you, dear listener, and I don't care who knows. <laughs> I'm Jack... <laughs> I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>